Welcome to the SLN Podcast, where your hosts interview top industry influencers and break down the latest trends in sports, fitness, fashion, and innovation. The SLN Podcast is on now. This episode of the Sport Lifestyle Podcast is presented by Empirica. That's Empirica, E-M-P-I-R-I-K-A. Empirica exists to amplify your brand's growth a digital partner to the ambitious, the creative engine launching brands and igniting growth, the unagency where relationships matter, not transactions. Let's connect at EmpiricaMedia.com. That's EmpiricaMedia.com. Let's get the show started. Welcome back to the SLN Podcast. I'm John Peters. And on this episode, friend of the network Kim Blair from Cooper Perkins interviews his close friend, Tom Waller who is now the chief science officer at Lululemon. Kim covers a variety of topics, including Tom's early career, dating all the way back to Tom's PhD in sports technology. Tom talks how that led him down a path at the intersection of design, engineering, and human performance. Tom went on to consult for many of the sports industry's largest brands before joining Lululemon and ultimately founding the famed Whitespace, Lululemon's R&D and innovation group. Tom also touched on why Lululemon is a community-first brand, the meaning of sweat life, and how Mirror integrates into their plans. Let's get to the conversation. So, Tom, you and I first met when you were nearing the completion of your PhD thesis at Loughborough University in the UK. At that time, I was heading the Sports Innovation Initiative at MIT, and your advisor, Professor Mike Kane, invited me over to visit the Sports Technology Institute there. I had a chance to meet with each of the graduate students and learn about their research. And you were focusing on the development of inspiratory muscle training technologies. Maybe you could start and tell the audience a little bit about that research and actually just even describe what inspiratory muscle training is. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty sexy, isn't it? Um, I, I, I never set out to do that. And I think it's probably worth sharing a little bit about the, the history of Mike and I. So, Mike joined our school. It was a, the Wolfson School of Mechanical and Manufacturing Engineering. So it's a bit of an engineering heavy school. And there was a module in our final year called Sports Technology because of the research group that was housed in our, in our school. Historically, the research group had been really, really looking at bats and balls and rackets and clubs, you know, things that would, that would be the subject of more traditional engineering approaches. Um, I wasn't the world's best engineer by any stretch, um, so, and nor have I ever or will ever claim to be. Um, but Mike, Mike joined that year, and his job was to set up a new undergraduate program. I think that was his first mission. But Mike's background was human biology, and he'd done his PhD in inspiratory muscle training uh, at Birmingham under a lady, Professor Alison McConnell, who's the sort of the like the the lady that really created this approach to human performance or certainly what we recognize it as now um mike and i through the the module became sort of friends partly because i looked at a world of human performance that i hadn't really seen before and it wasn't about the performance of the product it was about the performance of the human and as an athlete it just resonated with me so much more and the, that moment of realizing that I could bring my obsession with design and engineering and technology to the performing athlete, a, a sort of a light bulb went off. And um, anyway, we carried on chatting. And one day he said, hey, do you want to do a PhD or would you ever consider a PhD? And I sort of said, well, not really. Aren't, aren't PhDs the people that don't want to get jobs? I really want to get a job. <laughs> um, and, and I'll never forget, I was sat in his office and he said, but what if we create something so uniquely useful that the industry like falls over itself to, you know, to work with us? So, you know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's the sentiment that I remember. And I was hooked. And I didn't think I, I don't think I really cared what PhD he offered me <laughs> uh, at that moment. So in spiritual muscle training, I think in hindsight was one of the best moves that I made because it got me into a place where I really understood human physiologies, particularly respiratory physiology, uh, how, how the body works and its distribution of its resources at the highest levels of performance. 
And this discovery by Alison and, and Mike and actually where they commercialized a product, which is also very attractive to me, was that you can train the muscles that you use to breathe. Like the active part of breathing is the inspiration, the inhalation. You know, your diaphragm, which is this big muscle that sort of cuts you in half at the bottom of the rib cage, that descends like a syringe you know, down into the abdomen. The intercostal muscles, which are the muscles between each rib, they sort of act to lift the rib cage up. So basically, we increase the, the volume or certainly the, the size of the, the thorax. The lungs, uh, in response, open up and draw air in from the outside. So it's a, it's a fairly active and demanding process, particularly at high levels of exercise. And it turns out nothing that we traditionally do optimally trains those muscles. So the muscles that we use to breathe are suboptimal until we take a very directed and laser-focused approach. So inspiratory muscle training is the act of training those muscles. And by training those muscles, the whole system sort of redistributes its resources. And you, know, you can improve the strength and endurance of those muscles quite considerably by giving them a little, you know, a little set of their own dumbbells, which is just changing or managing the air that goes into like, with the breath so that the muscles have to work harder during a training cycle. And that can then um, shift the, the load of the breath. So when you're at maximal levels, um, about 20% of your body's resources are being used for the act of breathing. So if you can even knock off like, a couple of percent and that gets redistributed to you know, the limbs or other parts of other hungry parts of the body, then overall performance goes up. So I was developing various different technologies predominantly focused that were done in situ so we wanted to see if we got a slightly bigger kicker of a gain if you could do it while you were running while you were rowing while you were cycling knowing that specificity is really key so so yeah that that's that was my um undergrad oh, sorry not my undergrad that was my phd work with mike and in that period we just we got on a whole raft of different adventures and i shall never forget that time that you came to visit and i was yeah i was sort of finishing off and um, I, th I don't think that I was subject to your interrogation uh, <laughs> at that time. Um, but, but, but you did a lecture to the group, and it was a mix of undergrads and us all doing PhDs. And all of those projects that you'd worked on, my mind just started to expand and explode even more. You know, I was already recklessly thinking about what we would do to the industry. And I thought, oh, here's someone else that's already done it, already doing it. So you really validated that, that this was a career path worth, worth pursuing. Well, I guess Mike would be happy to hear that because I think that that's, uh, that's why he brought me over was to, uh, you know, inspire the next generation to uh, follow behind us. So, so do you use inspira inspiratory muscle training today? I do. Yourself? Yeah, I do. In, in various capacities. I think um, it's, I, don't, I don't use any of the technologies that we built. Um, mainly because I can't buy them here. Uh, I know a lot of athletes still do use them, which is very exciting. But yeah, because I think I learned so much about it, I realize how I can in any moment train it by managing like, how air is going into my body. And I recognize that the breath, um, and actually fast forward to now, like understanding the, the breath and how the breath affects the human state um, is is critical i use it all of the time so my breath awareness probably is a little higher than most um and uh and yeah it's something that i've definitely pulled forward although um yeah i haven't really built any inspiratory muscle training technology since that's <laughs> So, so it's interesting. I think you, you you hit on an interesting commonality between the two of us, and that's you know you end up in everybody ends up in grad school for different reasons, and and um, you know there's a lot of times PhD people really head deep into the research field, and you know people like you and people like me, it's like we get really inspired on creating new things. Uh, and your next step on that venture was uh, to to join, also still still stay with Mike Kane, but this time roll out after your PhD and join uh, his group, uh, Progressive Sport Technologies. What what can you tell me a little bit about that group? And you know, in those few years, you know, kind of you know, what are your favorite memories, biggest challenges, you know, best stories? Well, it, it, I mean, it's I think uh, it's probably still the best job I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> 
I hope your boss isn't listening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just to explain why, you know, if if I think about a time where, you know, I I grew up playing rugby and that was, you know, one of my favorite times of my life as well, being part of a team where uh, everyone had, you know, positional excellence and we understood patterns of play, but it didn't really matter who scored. It just mattered that a score occurred. Um, so for me, the only time I've truly replicated that professionally was when we were at Progressive. So it was where my existence as an athlete and my existence as a professional felt almost identical. You know, I was just working with some incredible people, all positionally excellent. Um, no one really hierarchically looking at anything corporate or structured. We just wanted to do cool stuff for the industry. Um, they started off really focused on all of the ideas that were brimming, you know, and overflowing from from either the undergraduate students at that time, in particular a chap called Ross Weir, who uh, another very influential person in my life, but co-founder Progressive with Mike. And um, I really wanted to get attached to it. I was desperate to get involved, but um, they their primary focus was take these ideas productize them, bring them to the industry. And at the same time, industry was coming to the group and saying, we really want to work with the research group. How can we work? And there was this, um, you know, those of us that have been in academia, we know that it's not easy for industry to sort of adhere themselves to academia unless they want to sponsor a master's student or a PhD student or get involved in quite long-term relationships or pay expensive consultancy with lots of overhead. So there was this little loophole. We said, well, maybe we should open up a little consultancy arm of Progressive whereby we give brands really, really lightweight access to all of the expertise and the facilities that we had. So I took that on. I took on the, the consultancy side of the business. You know, Mike was very good at building the network and getting us contacts. They would come into us and then we would pitch for projects and develop this thing that we called instant expertise, which was in general, most of the contracts that were coming in until 24 hours before we didn't really know anything about what it would be that we might do so we would we would read the material and learn our asses off on the basis that then we could we knew we could figure it out we knew how we had the collective expertise and um so that so progressive for me was a period of uh leveraging this sort of broadening range of expertise that i was uh, accumulating with my then peers that were getting attracted to, similar to me, wanted to be part of Progressive. And it just meant that we got exposed to every product category, almost every sports sporting goods brand, um, and so many different problems. You know, and uh, from discrete projects that were done in a day to, to stuff that would attract a brand so much to our competency that they would end up sponsoring a PhD, which was great for the university. That's fabulous, you know, and, and, you know, being at Cooper Perkins and, and you know, in a, in a similar uh, engineering practice, uh, uh, similar to what progressive technologies is, at least from a business standpoint, uh, you know, I totally get, totally relate to that. And, and I, I loved your quotes about positional excellence and instant expertise. I mean, that's, that's really a lot of times uh, what you have to bring to the table. The other aspect of, of the consultancy world, I'm sure you realize, is that, uh, you know, you get a really good team built. And then the next thing you know, one of your clients or uh, somebody you've developed a relationship with the client comes in and starts pulling away the talented people. Uh, and I suspect, I'm not for sure, but I suspect that that may have been uh, what happened to you with your uh, next step off to uh, Speedo. It, yeah, it was. Yeah, they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that the writing was on the wall for me in that. You know, as a consultant, particularly part of our consultancy was validating other people's work. So a company would come and say, we've built what we think is the world's best X. We would validate it. And unfortunately, a great many times we would be saying, yeah, it's not quite what you think it is. And that was really frustrating. And so for me, there was this inevitable future whereby I, I, I well, I can't, I can't be the person that keeps saying, no, it doesn't work. I need to, if that's true, if I, if I, if I'm able to say that, then in theory, I should know how to make it work. So 
at some point I'm going to be joining, you know, one of these companies and being a part of the creation of those things. And hopefully then when I go and use Progressive, they're not saying, no, it doesn't work. They're saying, congratulations, you're doing a great job. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, I, and I, I was fascinated by a couple of categories and a couple of brands uh, that we were working with. C- clothing or apparel felt like it just hadn't had very much attention. It felt like it was the, the slowest moving, furthest behind category um, full of sort of myths and legends and, and rainbows without pots of gold. And I thought, surely, surely apparel can have a more meaningful um, existence or an importance in terms of how it's driving human performance. And at that time, we were working with Speedo, where they were transferring some of the technology that they discovered in the laser racer, which that year they'd had such incredible success with at the Olympics in Beijing, this is 2008, they wanted to take some of that technology into triathlon. And so we were helping them to do that, helping them to understand the sport, helping them to, you know, um, optimize the offering in terms of what fabrics would come through and how, um, what would be the claims that they should start to chase and that kind of thing. And the person that was leading that work, a chap called Jason Rance, who was at that time the head of Aqualab, you know, he had been just this incredible force at Speedo in bringing together a talented group of people in order to have this success, you know, this early success with the laser racer. And he was thinking about moving on. And he asked me one day, you know, would I, would I consider, you know, filling his, you know, considerable shoes um, by joining uh, Speedo and heading up Aqualab and, I kind of very quickly said yes before I really had time to think it through Um, because because it it represented apparel. It represented apparel that did make a difference already and it represented an opportunity for me to apply a lot of what I knew how to do, you know, this methodical attention to um, understanding why something works and also to extract the things that really work and make that useful for more parts of the organization. So, I think the mission, although it was quite implicit, joining Speedo was to kind of look at the laser race and say, how else can we improve on that? How else can we make it more useful? How else can we um, um, learn from that and, and set the rest of our business up for success? Because, yes, there are there's a considerable number of you know, gold medals and world records associated with that first launch. Um but then looking at that as in terms of how it transitions to, you know, fiscal success for the for the company, other than, you know, PR or marketing headlines was something that, that they really wanted, um, wanted us to get better at. So that became the mission. And then, I mean, joining Speedo, I joined it at the best and the worst time. You know, I, I, I kind of, I went into to something so successful and had the opportunity to just, turn it into something great and then the world was all was whether i realized it or not the world was about to fundamentally shift with rule changes that were starting to amass that within a couple of years of my tenure that everything everything shifted yeah so i want to get to the rule thing in a moment but just back up uh in the in the first couple of years of your tenure there um uh you know i had the chance actually both of us you and i ended up in an imac e meeting in in london at one point and i and i got to really see a very deep uh technical conversation that you gave about you know all the technologies uh and the audience was a bunch of engineers so you went pretty nerdy pretty quick in there uh talking about some of those things uh i don't want to put you on the spot to do that again here and our our audience are probably uh you know if you and i go off on engineering speak our audience will probably take a nap pretty quickly but maybe you could kind of talk i mean there's some interesting uh what a lot of people would call buzzwords, but there's some really interesting applications that you guys, I felt, really did a great job of actually putting to work. You know, uh, water tunnel testing, computational fluid dynamics, uh, biomimicry. You know, maybe you could kind of bring that to a little top, a top of the level conversation and talk about how those kind of, uh, you know, those research tools and, and some of those philosophies influenced your design over those first couple of years. Yeah, 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 no, th- thanks. Well. I think the, the most important thing to understand is that the human body was not born to be fast in water. <laughs> um, and, my, and, my swim times reflect that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, so, and you know, swimming, swimming is a really complicated act. 
you know, you've got a very sticky substance or draggy substance in water and a body that, you know, evolved to stand on two feet and, and, and have agility and mobility based in that sense, not to move through the water like a fish or, or a dolphin or a whale. So we, we, we as a company at Speedo just took a sort of a, a first principles view. It's like, well, what is it about the human body that makes it slow uh, in water? And if you think about a swimmer, there's two things that you have to address. There's your, your ability to propel yourself. So your, your technique, your style, your strength, your stamina, all of the things that an athlete has to really focus on. The sort of things that we felt like not really our job as a company. Our job is not to put a propeller on a swimmer. You know, we cannot add add power. What we can do is eliminate waste. So we can reduce the amount of drag that a swimmer experiences. And a swimmer experiences three different kinds of drag. So there's the drag of just the waves that, that are around them and the wave that they create. If you look at a ship moving through water, there's this bow wave, this sort of bulge in front of, of, of a ship. It becomes exponentially harder to push the water in front of you the faster and harder you move forward. So that's that's the biggest thing that's getting in the way of a swimmer and the hardest thing to solve without adding like appendages all over the athlete, which you already weren't allowed to do that at the time. The next one then is form drag. So it's your basic shape. Um, you think about the most efficient shape that would move through water is probably like a torpedo or a pencil, something that's long and straight um, and, and, and round, or at least teardrop, you know, like you would see in, in a wind tunnel. You know, we're just managing you know, the flow of a liquid as it's going over a body. Um, so you want to make sure you, with the right shape of a swimmer, you just get everything out the way that might otherwise get in, you know, push against the water. And then there's the surface drag, which is the, the essentially the smoothness of that shape. You know, you can have a rough, rough and textured surface or a very smooth surface, and that comes down to again, like how does the the water in this case stick to the body because it needs to not stick too much, otherwise you get unnecessary drag. So form drag and skin friction drag are the things that we can affect um, the most. Where in terms of a company that creates essentially apparel. Um, you can shave a human body down, uh, remove all of the hair, and that will actually reduce the skin friction drag quite considerably, um, So, which is why most swimmers will do that. So you don't necessarily see it on TV, but they are all, you know, perfectly smooth bodies. Um, the next stage then is to look at um, the sort of the the the... the the compliance of skin. You know, skin is is soft. Muscles are soft, and in fact, swimmers, their muscles are even softer. You know, they don't they don't spend so much time in gravity. So their muscles, even though they're big and strong and muscular, it's it's a very supple surface. So you think about water going over that surface. If you if you were to look at it through um, in slow motion, it kind of looks like jello as it's sort of like wobbling away in response to the water flowing over its surface. Again, that's drag. So if you put a different layer over that surface, you can stiffen the skin and you can smooth the skin even more, which is the, the basic premise of, um, of, uh, of putting a, you know, a racing suit onto a body. We want to stiffen the surface, smooth, smooth the skin, and you know we can optimize that by using wind tunnels or water tunnels, which just allows us to measure the force. And we'll try different iterations to try and get to the lowest amount of force so that you've got the slipperiest, smoothest surface. And then additionally, we use a type of fabric that is that allows us to form the swimmer. We want to, all of those squidgy bits that we have on our bodies, if we can smooth them out down the, down the length of your body, then you end up being just a faster shape. And actually, it's interesting. There's two ways to do that with a swimmer. So yes, one, you can sort of, you think about the pectorals, you know, your chest muscles, they sort of stick out a bit. Your butt kind of sticks out a little bit. You know, the shape of your thighs could probably be a little rounder. And so we can smooth that up and down. But when a swimmer gets tired, what generally happens is their legs start to drop. 
And the, the, the bigger problem with form isn't so much the shape like down the length of your body. It's actually when your legs start to drop, you end up punching a bigger hole. So the overall drag becomes quite huge. So what we there did there was we had this thing called the core stabilizer, which is one of the, aside from the fabric technology, one of the core core pieces of core inventions that the team built when they built the laser racer. And what that did is it just added a little bit of rigidity to the hip joint so that the legs were less likely to drop. So you, you just kept punching a, a smaller hole. So we went through a ton of processes, you know, in lab environments, measuring fabrics, measuring forms. We had swimming flumes uh, all over the world where we would put suits onto mannequins. We'd put suits onto athletes and, that would gradually help us to optimize. And all the time, you know, the raw materials development team were trying to figure out how to make a fabric that's so um, impressive on the body, but still possible to get on, <laughs> which was no mean feat. That was a difficult challenge for the athletes. Um, and then we would also do a lot of work in a, in a computer environment because that would allow us to iterate, certainly on form. Um, so we would... You know, it's, it takes a long time to make a brand new suit, um, get it into a pool, into a swimming flume, maybe in New Zealand or, or, or elsewhere in Europe. So we would do a lot of computer simulation, which would allow us to simulate over a particular form or a variety of forms to see what is the best form. And then we would try and replicate that with the suits that we would build. That's a fabulous process. It really is a fabulous process. You know, you alluded to this a minute ago. Uh, we have one other thing in common uh, in that each of us has been involved in the development of performance apparel, you with swimming, obviously, and me with free skiing. Uh, and both of us have the badge, I guess, of having developed something that's a little too good. And the rules bodies came back and said, nope, no way. It's now banned. We've changed the rules. So tell me a little bit about, you know, that perpetual tension that, that you've seen, uh, certainly at Speedo and elsewhere, uh, between innovators and rule makers in sports uh, around apparel equipment. And, and you know, kind of how did that play out in, in you know, basically the, uh, the banning of full body swimsuits? Yeah, it was a fascinating time. I remember starting to feel this rise in the community uh, of swimming where coaches, athletes, the governing body, the brands, you know, we're all, we're all starting to operate in slightly different planes. And, um, you know, I joined it quite late. You know, the laser racer already existed, um, but I went straight into this environment. And, uh, and that, I think, allowed me to retain a certain amount of uh, objectivity. And, you know, and we, we carried on developing the suit. We had even more coverage, even faster suits as, you know, when I, when I joined. But you, know, you, could see the, you could see something was about to happen. And, you know, I would be asked a lot about te technical doping, as I think was the phrase that was used, you know, for us when, when we were in that world. And we philosophically had a... Uh, what we considered to be a, a right approach, which was back to optimizing the form rather than adding any, adding any, we didn't want to make anyone a superhuman. We didn't want to make it so that anything other than their innate performance could come out. So we didn't add buoyancy. We didn't add propellers. We didn't, you know, we didn't take away the sensory experience of swimming However, what we noticed in the in the attempt to do a giant catch up to Speedo, who were you know so dominating elite swimming, other companies were introducing more wetsuit based materials. So they were more you know they would trap a lot more air. They were inherently buoyant in themselves, and that you know more and more records were falling from from our from our competitor garments as well, not just our products. And that's when I think the coaches triggered it primarily. They're like. You know, we're, we're starting to not be able to influence through our discipline work with our athletes over many years the results. You know, they in their minds the best athletes weren't necessarily winning. We thought it was like, well, maybe we've redesigned what that means. Look at Formula One. Look at other sports where technology has a, an important place. But the governing body, I think, were uh, nervous um, that there was this swell of uh, discontent. And, uh, and so they enrolled um, uh, 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 university, uh, EPFL in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, to 
to take a look at you know the current rules and the reality was there weren't really any tests that would level any kind of the playing field there was it was a quite a subjective process to allow one suit to be deemed legal or not and so it was the right thing to do i would have done the same i would i think i would have very much have been on the other side of that camp i would have would have been like yeah we need we need to make sure that there are some um, there are some uh, guardrails that would allow invention to occur in a in a way that is fair, similar to you know, even in Formula One. There's you know, there's only so much wind tunnel time. There's only so much. Um, I think that they maybe swung the pendulum a little hard. Um, <laughs> my my personal opinion. Um, however, at that time, and I remember sitting in Lausanne when you know, when we, in the manufacturers' meetings, and I felt like there was an opportunity to 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 make one of two choices. One choice was to to fight and be and be representative of you know manufacturer base that just wanted to you know add add a lot of like sexy exciting stuff to to the sport. Um, or I could really deeply understand the concerns and align myself uh, and the company to the people that had the tough job of creating the new future. So I chose that. I chose that path. And so became very close to the to um, certainly the body that had been empowered with testing. And I just gave them as much advice as I possibly could. They'd never built suits before. They didn't know, you know, as much as we did about the textiles, the, the yarns, the fibers that we built. So I just said, this is everything that we do. This is everything that we no, and this is, I think, you know, this would be my recommendation, how you could resurrect um, something that is still fair, which, you know, I wanted to tra- tread the line carefully. I didn't want to, you know, exploit the, the position that I that I had and make it about speedo. You know, I think that competition was really important. It made us all better um, when we were sort of fighting for those medals um, within the guardrails. But what it did afford me, because I decided not to be antagonistic to you know the system, um, I started to understand what they really wanted, what they really cared about, how important they thought the purity of swimming was, how important that the athlete experience should be as they go through you know their life as a junior, being coached all the way through to being an Olympian. And so what that did was just give me enough of an insight to make sure that then when I went back to the team, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that we can be successful in this new world. We need to stop fighting it. We need to embrace it. And let's see what we can do to get there first. So that's what we did. And uh, that's when we built the Laser Pro, which like beautifully was, um, you know, we got to market uh, a little earlier, a little better, I think, than a lot of our competitors because we hadn't wasted time fighting. Um, and uh, for Speedo, it was a huge commercial success because we became, you know, in that 2010, 11, approaching 12 season, we we became, we, you know, we were the suit of choice. Um, so that was a great internal success story for me and the team. And culturally, it just showed us that that's the sort of the right path to take as you know speed is a long you know, an old brand it must be pushing 100 years old now if it hasn't already passed that so um so yeah so the opportunity to to think about sport legacy was just i'm glad we made that choice that's an excellent story and and you know for a lot of brands i think uh to your point uh, they, they don't necessarily make that choice and and uh you know they end up uh, spending too much time fighting with regulatory people on these kind of things, and it's it, it really is, uh, and certainly uh, in my career too, it's it's I've tried to encourage you know open table communication and cooperation where we all win. You know, it's it's that difficult balance between the sport, and the fan, and the sponsor, and trying to keep every every one of those constituencies happy. And you know, once one of those gets unhappy, uh, you know that virtuous cycle just falls apart, and and it's not good for anybody. So after Speedo, you crossed an ocean and a continent and ended up at uh, Vancouver uh, and with Lululemon. Um, and after you arrived at Lululemon, you built what's been uh, what you tagged the White Space team. Uh, tell me about White Space and, and what your sources of inspiration were in setting up the initial strategy for that group. Well, um, 
you know, Lululemon were familiar to me. I mean, you introduced me to Lululemon a long time ago. I'd never I never, I probably mispronounced their name. And um, I'll never forget. It was a consultancy project, wasn't it? I'll never forget getting back on the uh, getting back on the plane from Vancouver to the UK and thinking, "Hmm, this company is either not going to be here next year, or they're going to change our industry forever." And I'd already seen there was this shift in competition that was just different. People. People that I knew, people that I hung out with, even in the elite programs, competition, life, health, activity, thing, something was happening, uh, and it was and it was not familiar. It were until I went to Lululemon and I saw something that I recognised was the truth about the future. And so when they asked me if I would be interested in setting up a team, and knowing that they hadn't had a team before. And knowing that they had this culture that was about innovation, that was about, well, just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean it shouldn't be. And uh, so I kind of snapped their arm off and was delighted by the fact that they didn't really know what they wanted me to do. So I could do whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, 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 was, I was hired to head up product innovation and I quickly um, made the request of my hiring manager uh, that that was a bad idea because I didn't think any one person should own innovation. Um, and at the time, I remember there were a lot of, you know, jargon um, being, like terms being thrown around. And, and for a company in growth, one of those you know, jargon statements was the white spaces, these places adjacent to our company that maybe we should occupy. And I thought that that was a much more meaningful way of representing what I thought we could do, which was in the business, they didn't have people like me. So I was like, I'll hire what we don't have and I'll partner with you so that we together can go and work on building capabilities in these white spaces. And we'll call that effort white space. So it was a blurry team because culturally, they have a high tolerance for ambiguity, which meant that I didn't have to be to have hard edges. I didn't have to be in a team environment where it was like that team does this and this team does that. It allowed me to go back to this sort of um, at least philosophically ideal state, which was positional excellence. It's a team sport, not a relay race. It's not about white space does their thing and then hands over this baton to the main line and main line then handed over to brand and then brand handed over to retail. In my mind, the right way to do innovation was to, to, to build a competency that's based on team sport, a togetherness, a blurriness, and everyone has a role at the table. Our role should be distinct and our role should be really valuable and uh, our focus should entirely uh, represent the core competency of the company, not the core focus of the company, the core competency of the company. And what I saw in Lululemon is that sensorially, everyone I spoke to, everyone I met, people would describe our products as if they were some kind of magic potion. You know, they seemed to make people feel just incredible and they had this difference. They were just unique compared to anything else. You know, you think one black street chapter, black stretchy pant would be somewhat the same as another black stretchy pant, but seemingly not at all. So I coined this term science of feel, which was representative of the disciplines that I was pulling into a, a group of talented people that sought to, and this is kind of hindsight now, but sought to extract all of the different feel states that did exist. And so we could codify them, make them more available to the company and that didn't exist that could create more experiential delight for the consumers, our guests, as we call them, um, in order that um, it best replicated the core competency of the business. And it also, um, and this is somewhat by happy coincidence, but I was determined to see if it was true, is in elite sport, it was very clear to me that it wasn't physical things that were holding people back. It was all emotional, psychological. You know, That was where the limits were. And so if I could find a way to build a sort of a body-mind feedback loop, um, which actually yoga kind of represented, that Lululemon kind of represented because it was a bit of a zagger to the zig of, of normal sports, then I could probably find a new way to access higher levels of performance. 
didn't mean that I thought that Lululemon would end up a performance company, but it meant that I th- I could see that every person on the planet was starting to get more concerned about their performance, whatever performance meant to them. And so that mixing of emotional and physical was something that we could do. And I hadn't really seen it done before, except how important I knew it was to an elite. So codifying that, figuring that out, using Lululemon as a platform to build it, that's that's been now the mission for yeah, nearly, well, just over eight years. That's impressive. So, so it's interesting, um, you know, uh, people talk about you know sport research and you know their discussion around speedo obviously was a was a, a good example of what I mean here in that you know there's a world stage where you see the results of that effort uh, put out there you know uh, at least every four years in the case of swimming and other sports you know every Sunday depends on what it is you know that's really driving a lot of the technical innovation and that in in that aspect I don't see Lululemon as a typical performance tech company but yet you know through my you know through our conversations over the years, through the chances I've had to visit with you and see your facilities and all those kind of things over the years, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, the, the, you've got all the tools, all the research, the know-how, uh, a lot of background and experience uh, with your team and researching all these kind of things. You know, why invest the effort? And you know what? What if you've kind of alluded to some of this a little bit in your science of field, but what do you what do you really feel you've learned from from what is a, a large investment? Well, without uh, any doubt in my mind, the most important technology uh, to understand um, and develop is the human. And I and I really wish more companies would recognize that because I think that there's a lot of technologies that are just not necessary. And and I have a fairly healthy distaste for people that put solutions in front of ahead of problems. I think that understanding the human as a technology, the human as a uh, not as a robot, but as a as a uh, a deeply complex engineering challenge um, means that you can affect performance for any task in any way. So our desire, like the, the reason that I set up all of our facilities was to, to make sure that we as a group understood the human condition at least as well, if not better than anyone else in the world, on the basis that if Lululemon wanted to get into any category from apparel to automotive, it shouldn't matter because we would be able to expertly um, find the best way to service the emerging human condition. So for us, it, it is about understanding performance, but it's about human performance, not product performance. The product is there to serve the human performance. And we all individually, we all have a human performance that we desire, even if that is just to be comfortable. And just to take that as an example, comfort is a word that we all use so easily, and it means everything and nothing. To be comfortable is an extremely um, desirable state, and it is incredibly complicated to understand. It is a very complex mix of past experiences, knowledge, belief, extra, extra, uh, extra uh, um, external perception or external measurement, internal measurement, all of the senses that are already in your body. So the reason that we go to those lengths is because um, if everyone at the very least wants to be comfort comfortable, um, our job is to make sure that they individually can achieve comfort even in the places where they are growing, which by definition is when you push your edges, where you are on the edge of being uncomfortable or where discomfort occurs. So for us, it's very much about every person has the right to achieve whatever goal that they set. They have a basic you know, genetic makeup. Um, but they've been building a wonderful library of software from the day that they were born. All of that software can be um, affected in such a way that it allows the, you know, the individual to get the most out of the gifts that they were that they were given, no matter maybe how much they've abused them up to that point. <laughs> we work with a lot of elite athletes still, 
And a lot of elite athletes wear our products because they want to, not because we pay them to. And I think that that's an important thing to recognize as well is that, you know, clothes are an enabler to performance if you put them in the right way onto the body in the right way. And if you understand the individual physically and emotionally and socially, um, then that's how you help them get the best out of their performance. I just think that it would be um, a shame to only take that philosophy and apply it to elite athletes because every person probably has a goal that they'd like to achieve and the same rules apply that you know olympians aren't aliens they just they haven't evolved more they just have you know a particular genetic makeup that allows them to go to a certain extreme in a certain very tiny niche but they are exactly the same as the rest of us so we all have access to some level of greatness yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, you talked about being the experts about uh, human performance and, and uh, in, in any application, which is uh, a, a big difference from what you started out talking about with uh, progressive and the instant expertise. That uh... <laughs> <laughs> we're still like, okay, what have we got to be an expert in tomorrow? <laughs> I train it in my team already. Well, there you go. That's good. So, you know, our, our, I'm sure everybody probably is, has been listening all along and said, okay, when are they going to talk about Mirror? So oh. let's talk about Mirror. <laughs> um, obviously, a relatively new acquisition with Lululemon. Um, and, you know, I, I, uh, I'm going to let you, I'm just going to throw that out there and let you talk about it because uh, I don't want to, I don't want to position this uh, discussion in any way that, uh, um, you know, with any kind of preamble. So, t so tell me about Lululemon and Mirror and, and you know, kind of how did that evolve and, and you know, what, what's, you know, kind of what are you guys seeing uh, going forward there? Well, a few years ago, we, 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 we thought it important to better codify our culture. For the most part, from a distance, you know, we're an apparel retailer. But those people that choose to come closer to our brand recognize that we're so much more and they want access to more of what we do, you know, what we do for our employees and what we do in a community, what we do for our stores. So first and foremost, we're a community company. Our stores are a reflection of the each community that they occupy. And the store manager is somewhat the CEO of their community and they have to reflect and partner with their community because every community is different. Some are you know, studio heavy, yoga heavy, run heavy, you know, entrepreneur heavy, urban, rural, you know, they, they're all different. So they all need to be met where they are at. And um, in that, what we always bring is this culture and we call this culture the sweat life. And the sweat life to us is how we as individuals at the company and in our communities encourage people to sweat. So folk, you know, develop their physical fitness grow, develop their emotional fitness, and connect, develop their social fitness. So this is where communities and humans, whole humans, come together to achieve great things. So you think then about us looking at that and saying, well, we're a sweat life company, and our job is to bring the sweat life to life so that everyone has the choices to, to be the best that they can be, to, to realize their potential, whatever that might be. Um, just having stores um, where, you know, we would move the fixtures out the way on a Sunday and give free yoga classes, you know, that was in, in the old way of, of uh, enabling people to experience who we are. Um, we, we could absolutely see in the future that we have a responsibility to, to bring more of the ecosystem to life for our guests. And so we set about understanding you know, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to truly be an omni-brand, a brand where you know, we can be within arm's reach of desire on the basis that that includes the consumption of content, the location is, you know, we could see it becoming more variable. It wasn't just about studios it was also about home um even more so i mean who could have predicted what's just happened this last this last year um but thank goodness we were already considering that you know, we should figure out how to be a sweat life brand and so mirror mirror came along as just um uh, i guess a uh, a best case scenario of 
a portal that was an enabler of the sweat life that could be in everyone's home. You know, it's so versatile. It didn't really pick and choose between any one activity, just like we don't um, as a company uh, from a Lululemon point of view. So there was this marriage that I think quickly became real to us. And the founder is a, a, a former ambassador of, of Lululemon, so knows us, knows our culture. Uh, from New York and um, and she's an athlete by trade um, and a studio owner by trade prior to that so unlike you know where we'd seen so many you know there were technologies looking for problems or solutions looking for problems she had built a solution around a problem she as a studio owner and a mom um, recognized that access was important we were starting to look at how we could achieve access and so the two things have just come together so yeah, we're really we're really excited about what that will become. It's still really early days, you know. For the most part, what we are now is two companies, you know, leaning on each other to uh, expand and offering, you know, us making sure that people uh, are aware and can have access. And we won't claim yet to be anything that we are not. Ultimately, uh, our guest, our consumer, decides what they need us to be, and we'll just make sure we're just a little step ahead and ready for when that switch occurs, which Mira is an important part. But I'm really glad that we, you know, that we partnered up with Mira long before this year kicked in, because I think it's meant that we've just got uh, a lot of momentum that we would never have predicted. So it's a, it's a great outcome. Oh, that's fabulous. So let's um, let's look to the future a little bit, uh, in not necessarily Lululemon and or Mirror, but um, I'm just going to ask you to take your crystal ball out and peer into the future. And you know, what do you see as the top three challenges for innovators working at the intersection of human performance and technology in the coming five years or ten years? I there's a, there's a few different ways to look at that. I'd say. Technology, as we tend to describe it now in terms of digital, a lot of it is being commoditized. So I think that there's there's a challenge in finding commercial success in selling sensors um, that, that on their own aren't part of something else, uh, aren't part of, you know, uh, a rich ecosystem. You know, there are a number of big companies, one of them, you know, kind of like a fruit that I think has just done an amazing job of showing what ecosystem can be um, when it's a part of our everyday life and in our pocket. So it's important in my mind to ensure that uh, when we look into the future, we're creating and curating systems, not trying to sell little tiny add-ons that end up in somebody's drawer um you know frustratingly you know redundant and waste of waste of investment um but i'd say what fundamentally transcends that is that those of us that are companies that create stuff uh the the ability to do that with and on one end of the spectrum, I think what is table stakes, minimal impact on the sustainability of our planet. That is mission number one. Um, however, I think going into crystal ball, I think minimal impact is just not good enough. Uh, we've actually just released our, our impact uh, agenda where we've set some fairly ambitious targets. And, you know, I live, you know, uh, with much gratitude, even you know, further into the future, with a lot of how we're thinking and, and, and acting and investing, and I will be unhappy, uh, unfulfilled, and incomplete until everything that we create has a net positive effect. Personally, that's what I believe is the most important thing that all of us that create stuff should be figuring out now. Which means we're going to be letting go of a lot. You know, we're going to be letting go of a lot of this, the sort of the paradigms of how we build solutions, how we have built solutions for tens, maybe even hundreds of years. So what I would say is um, taking a, a view uh, um, of, a, of a strategy of sustainability that is not defined by current technology, but is defined by emerging technology is the most important thing to do. For us, we make apparel 
you know, I'm particularly excited about biotechnology and you know, that next wave where we get to move you know, fully away from a world that is um, having to pull uh, you know, fossil fuels out of the ground to make you know, virgin you know, plastics, essentially. Um, we will make them minimally impactful without a doubt. We will do a better job than we ever have before and as good a job as anyone else does in the world. But for me, as the truly the innovator of that space, I'm thinking ahead, like beyond that. I think that you know biotech on, uh, or biology is really the only answer because it's it's the one that um, that has sustained, which is you know nature figures kind of a lot of stuff out. Um, we should probably stop you know fighting it, burning it, and learning from it, <laughs> and maybe, and maybe accelerating it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So one last little topic here, uh, Tom, it wouldn't be a conversation uh, with you and I, and, and normally oftentimes this conversation takes the uh, larger chunk of our time together. And that's yeah. the, the sport of triathlon. We're both yeah. triathletes, have raced a lot. So, so what have you been doing here in the last few months to kind of, you know, either replace that, supplement that, keep that part of the fire or that part of per your person alive? It's, uh, you know, it's a challenging time. Yeah, it's been a tough Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a crazy understatement, isn't it? But <laughs> I'd say for me personally, the two things that I've lost that I that I valued the most as uh, travel and racing. Uh, travel for me was the adventure. I think that's, I, in hindsight, I realized that was the fuel for um, my version of Cepheus. You know, as an innovator, you're, you know, you're pushing a boulder uphill for eternity. That's just, that's what comes with the territory you got to question where you get the energy to keep doing that. And I realized that mine was the adventure. I would be traveling the world, meeting, you know, serendipitously uh, or spontaneously a huge array of talent and, you know, startups and students and technologies and networks that just kept me believing um, that the future was ours for the taking. Uh, without the travel, that energy has gone away. Um, I've I've replaced that. With, I'm very lucky. I get to live in you know, North Vancouver, which is the mountainside of this city. So in my backyard, literally, I can see it out of my window. I have thousands and thousands of miles of just crazy terrain. And so my buddies and I, um, we have just gone on adventures our own little adventures in the great outdoors um not quite so you know serendipitously bumping into anything maybe other than a bit of wildlife but <laughs> making sure that we've held some perspective um the racing side of things um i've actually you know i rely a lot on things like strava so you know my personal best you know i race you know, endurance sport isn't, you're not really, you're not really racing the person next to you. It's really, you're racing that your own inability to manage your resources um, <laughs> and to, to get the most out of the training that you put in. So I focused a lot on, you know, those little areas, my little segments that, you know, I wanted to PB in this year, which I have on all of them. So I've kept that alive. And then, and then, yeah, I cannot wait though, because I mean, for me, I mean, I mentioned how important team sports is for me structurally, culturally, but from an innovation point of view, triathlon was, or in certainly endurance sports has always been an important reminder because the people that win a triathlon aren't the best cyclists or swimmers or runners. They, they're actually the people that manage their pace and nutrition the best. Right. And, and for me, that's also an important tenant of innovation it's the people that win are the ones that don't burn out too quick <laughs> that have, have enough nutrition to keep their energy up and that they pace it just right so that timing is perfect and the beautiful thing that you bring to life the world wants it just at that moment never happens but you know <laughs> so yeah, so yeah for me um i'm just very grateful of where i live and i know that a lot of people a lot of listeners probably don't have that luxury so i am extremely grateful for choosing Vancouver. 
Well, that's fabulous, Tom. As always, it's great to have a conversation with you. And uh, like you, I miss the days of travel. I miss the days of face-to-face. And uh, hopefully uh, hopefully, our next conversation will be uh, at one trail either out your back door or out mine. Yeah, me too. Well, thanks, Kim. It was lovely to hang out and uh, see you as ever. <laughs> All right. Take care, Tom. Thank you to our guests and sponsors. Without them, there would be no Sport Lifestyle Network. If you're listening via Apple Podcast or Spotify, be sure to rate us and subscribe. For more podcasts and to sign up for the newsletter, go to sportlifestylenetwork.com. Again, sportlifestylenetwork.com. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it. <laughs>